So my stomach says, "Have a snack or have dinner." Um, but my brain says, "Get us over with." Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show.、Um, I have clicked live, so yep, let's do this. Let's look at the four passages for today: Exodus chapter fifteen, Luke chapter eighteen, Job chapter thirty-three, and Second Corinthians chapter three.、Um, guess I should pray. Good idea, Heavenly Father.、Uh, help me with my hunger. <laughs> help me with my concentration.、Um, this is this is real food for the soul. So help me to see this as a good thing. I, I'm just. I mean, I I love this. I love reading your word, and help me, Lord. You know, just appreciate every bite.、Uh, help me to savor every、uh, morsel of truth that you speak to us today in your word.、And、I pray this in. Jesus's most precious name, Amen, Amen. So, hello again.、Uh, every day I read four passages from the Bible. So strange, you know. This guy, this random dude on the internet, he's reading four、uh, Bible passages. But I've done this for、uh, over a hundred days now.、Uh, yeah, and it's kind of like become like my routine. Like habitual, you know. I turn on the computer, click live, and then I regret it for the <laughs> for the rest of the hour, and then I just have to go through it and get it done. And I go, ah,、oh, done. And then I can have dinner.、Uh, by the way, dinner today is leftover rice with leftover. Oh no, I finished the chicken, so it's just leftover rice with kimchi. I always have endless supply of kimchi and a bit of sauce that the chicken was sitting in.、Uh, but that still sounds good if you're hungry. So on with Exodus chapter fifteen. We should get this set up beforehand so that I don't have to click it and get all stressed about what I'm looking at when I actually look at it. But yes, I'm looking at Exodus chapter fifteen, and this is the heading says the Song of Moses. Here he goes. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Song of Moses. I wonder if this is. Um, like、um, a musical, Moses <laughs> breaks out in the song, and everyone starts joining in as well. Let's see what he says in this song. So Moses and the people of Israel they sang this song to the Lord, to God, saying, "I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has He has thrown into the sea." Oh wow! Okay, so they're singing. Amazing! Praise you, God, because you killed those guys <laughs> together with their horses. They've thrown them into the sea, but it's praising God for His judgment. Well, for His salvation, He saved us by killing the enemy. There you go. Verse two: The Lord is my strength and my song; He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father is God, and I will exalt Him. Usually, when you know Chinese、uh, kids in Chinese church says my father's God, that's not a positive thing. You know, mom and dad's God. You know, not my God. But I think、uh, Moses means this in a positive way. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the father of their nation. You know, it's the same God who gave those promises, who now gives the same promises to me. So to save this nation, and so he's just done that again by killing all these Egyptians. Verse three: The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. There you go, a man of war.、Uh, somehow I think of Russell Crowe, you know, man of war, you know,、uh, gladiator. 
Yeah, it's a goddess, this gladiator who's fought this war, and he's won. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. So again, about this one event. You know, it doesn't talk about the other plagues, but this one big last miracle plague judgment that God pours out on Pharaoh, you know, this is the defining moment of God's salvation. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, chatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, Huh. Yeah. Then the water is piled up. The water, the floods stood up in a heap. Was it like the east wind that um, blew against the waters and then piled up the water so they had this wall of water on the left and on the right? So that's the blast of God's nostrils that this water is then were piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue... I will overtake, I will divide a spoil, my desire shall have, have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So confident was Pharaoh in just, you know, pursuing them. He had all these chariots. He was the stronger military force and he was confident he would win. But you, Lord, you know, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? I wonder if you could try singing this music because it's meant to be a song. Who is like you, O Lord, among... I won't do that. I won't sing. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I remember the prince of Egypt, they replaced all the occurrences of plagues with the words wonders. And I guess maybe they get it from here. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized, the inhabitants of Philistia now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. So all these other nations, not just Egypt, all these surrounding nations, Edom, Moab, Canaan. Do you remember where Edom comes from? That's Esau's descendants, Moab, um, sons of my father. This is Lot's uh, descendants and um, descend inhabitants of Canaan. All of them heard about what happened to Egypt and they melted away. <laughs> and all this strong for they melted what do I, what melts ice cream uh, cheese fondue you know the idea of something that's strong and rigid and all these forces now in fear uh, they melt away uh, before god verse 16 terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm they are still as stone till your people O lord pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased mm, god has purchased his people, he's paid for them, you know, with his wonders, I guess. Um, maybe you can't help but think of the lamb. You know, you're supposed to redeem each firstborn son with a lamb, with a sacrifice. Redeem means you pay 
uh, instead of your son, you give your son, you pay for your the, your son, which belongs to God. You pay for it with the life of the sacrifice. So God um, receives this payment and he buys. Uh, actually, that doesn't make sense. Okay, that makes sense in the sense that he owns his people, but he purchases his people maybe from slavery, so from Pharaoh. So he pays it through judgment. Maybe that's closer to the sense. Again, you know, foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus pays for us through his blood and frees us from slavery. So I guess that makes the fuller sense, makes the fuller uh, logical answer as to how is it that God pays for us and purchases and redeems us. Uh, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you've made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. There's this destination. So he's freed them, but the point of this freedom is to bring them to his place of abode where God is. He's going to bring them to Mount Sinai where they're going to worship him, uh, this, this place, this sanctuary which God has established by his hands. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So in verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel, they walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine ching, 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 in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he is thrown into the sea. Basically repeating verse 1. Yeah, so, yeah, kind of like the chorus. Sing to the Lord. You know, he's won, he's triumphed. And you see his triumph in the defeat of his enemies. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. Verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Mm. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. I think Marah means, means bitter, bitterness, bitterness, yep. So bitter water, this place, they're going to call it bitter place. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Ah, then the Lord, there the Lord, made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them. So this whole circumstance of coming to this place where there is no water, and well, there was, but the water that's bitter, you know, oh, they drink this. Oh, I can't drink this. And so God was actually testing them whether they would trust in Him. And it shows that they failed. You know, they didn't trust in God. And they still questioned whether He would provide for them. He protected them, you know, from the enemy, but would He provide for them in this desert, you know, with just basic stuff like water? Would He allow them to die? And it sounds kind of silly when you think of it, but when you're thirsty, you know, um, you know, we Christians, we say God has delivered us from, uh, from judgment. He saved us. But the moments when we have a toothache, when we go through difficulty, and when you know we're just in pain and we're in depression, you know, grumbling, God, why have you allowed this to happen? Why? That's the most common prayer of anyone who's in pain or in the hospital or in the dentist chair. Why have you allowed this to happen to me? And so this is God's test. 
Will you trust me? Not just when things go well, you know, I've saved you, but when things are tough, when you think you can't see the end of the situation, and all you can feel is your hunger. Like now, I feel hungry. You know, oh, you know I want to have dinner. Uh, he tested them, verse twenty-five, saying, "If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer." Oh wow! I never considered that. So God actually threatened this. You know, if if you trust me, then you would think then I will. I will bless you. You know, I'll give you abundant food. Is it no? <laughs> if you trust me, then I won't. I won't give you all the same judgments I give to the Israelites. Sorry, the Egyptians. You know, all the diseases I put on the Egyptians, for I am your healer. Meaning, um, the Egyptians who suffered. You know, you deserve that same judgment. The Egyptians who had all these plagues. What were the boils? Frogs. There was an interesting one. Frogs everywhere. Ribbit, ribbit. And you know the worst one was, of course, um, the death of all the firstborn. You know all those plagues. You know you uh, deserve those same judgments, but God delivered you. God saved you from His judgments upon you. You know I, the Lord, am your healer. Verse twenty-seven. Then he came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and he encamped there by the water. So that's the that's the end of the chapter. So after having no water, not being able to drink the water, and God solves that problem, tells Moses, you know, take this log, throw it into the water, and it became sweet from bitter to sweet. You know, that transformation God provides, that sweet water. Now he brings them to the spring. You know, there's lots of water, 12 springs of water, and lots of trees. So it shows there's, you know, lots of life. You know, it's very lush in the middle of this desert. And they encamp there, it says, by the water. And God brings them in fully intended them to bring them to a place of provision of uh, this mini paradise if you like but in between he 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 brings them into this place of bitterness and you know will you trust me here that will bring you here uh, while you're still in mara while you're still complaining you know there's no water will you trust that ultimately i will provide for you through this wilderness and bring you to this mini appetizer for the promised land i think that's what elim is you know Greater things are to come, and there's that promise, there's that hope, there's that guarantee because of God's word. But will you trust that word before that? You know that that realization that sweet water comes to you. Um, answer is no. <laughs> At least for the Israelites, they, no. Th th these would be one of the tests, the few tests that um, they would fail. And essentially, you know, spoiler alert, you know, all of them will die because all of them will keep, keep rebelling against God, keep doubting his word. Uh, why does God test them in this way then, you know, if he knows that they're going to fail? Well, it's not so much that test them and then if you fail this test, then you don't get in. But this test is more like a driving test. You know, the idea of a driving test, uh, yes, you fail your test and then you don't get your driving license. But the idea is that the test is meant to prepare you for the real test when you start driving, you know, when you get on the real road. You know, it's meant to simulate all these conditions in a controlled manner so that you prepare for them. And so that if anything happens, you know, the worst that happens is that you fail that test, but you don't get into a car crash. You, know, you don't get into 
you know, cause any harm. And these tests are like those driving tests, or if you think in school, you know, those mock tests. You know, these are tests that prepare you, therefore, so that you will succeed. God wants you to be faithful, so that when you face trials and you face temptations, you will be able to stand. But if you fail these smaller tests that God Himself has set up, so that you will stand, you fail these tests that God actually has given you enough provision so that you will stand and you still trust in Him. If you fail those, then you will definitely not be able to deal with that, those real life situations. And so God sets up these tests, essentially of His Word that He's provided us with, that reminds us that He is good, He is God, He will protect us, He will provide for us, so that we will stand. He doesn't want us to fail. But oftentimes we will, and we do, when we doubt the goodness and the godness of God in His Word. And that's what happens here. Uh, right after, He's just saved them. Right after the events of the Red Sea. Right after they sing all the songs, saying how amazing God is. They then grumble to Moses. How, you know, how, you know, how not so good God is. <laughs> what shall we drink? And they cry to the Lord. Yeah. Okay, so that's Exodus chapter 15. Moving on, moving on to Luke chapter 18. Um, ah, so no background music today. Don't know how that sounds like. Maybe a bit empty. Crickets. How do crickets sound? Creak, creak. <laughs> okay, all right. Very, very random. Luke chapter 18. Let's see how long is this. Okay, or not too long. Okay. Luke chapter 18. And he told them, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Imagine this old lady and this, you know, this unrighteous judge, this judge who doesn't fear God, doesn't care about anyone, doesn't respect man, doesn't respect God, doesn't respect anybody against this grandma. <laughs> for, a for a while he refused, verse 4, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming, by her nagging. Ah, oh, I can't stand her. Ah, oh, I, I, you know, usually I, I wouldn't do this for anyone. I wouldn't even do this for God, but for this lady, this widow, this grandma, this auntie, he just keeps persisting, keeps nagging me. Oh, I can't stand her. So I'll give her the justice that she seeks. Verse 6, and the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So comparing prayer with faith, comparing this unrighteous judge with God, you know, this situation whereby will you give up praying to God and will you still trust God through your prayers? Uh, the way this um, 
persistent, naggy auntie widow did with this judge. You know, this is a sad situation. This guy doesn't believe in God, you know, and yet he gives in to this lady because this lady is just so persistent. But you believe in a good God. You know, you, you claim that God is always hearing all of our prayers. He loves to hear anything and everything we say to him as our children, as his children, sorry. And, you know, we don't pray. <laughs> we, 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 do, we do horizontal prayers. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, when he turns up, will I find faith on the earth? You know, will he find us praying? Will you find us still trusting in God? Uh, the two are one and the same. You know, praying to God means we're trusting that God will hear our prayers. Verse 1 again, always pray. Don't lose heart. Um, and I think it's that always and losing heart. It's not that, it's not that we don't pray, you know. Yeah. You could pray right now. God, please help me. God, please help my friend in that situation. You could pray that. But then will you keep on praying? Will you not give up? You know, and sometimes maybe that's why God doesn't answer that prayer immediately. He wants us to keep going on, keep trusting in, in Him, keep praying to Him. Um, and it's not just about getting that quick answer, in other words, you know, to not give up. And to trust just that God is hearing us. Um, yeah, yeah, sometimes... You know, we feel pressured during that prayer time. I don't know whether you have prayer time at the end of your Bible studies or you have prayer meetings. You always have to come up with something new. But persistent prayer means you're constantly praying for the same stuff over and over again. So it's not coming up with new prayer items. I uh, Sometimes, you know, we, we just come up with stuff. And in the process of coming up with stuff during that prayer time, we come up with more problems. We try to almost impress one another. Oh, I'm facing with this difficult situation. And you come up with scenarios, which, which might be true, but we end up looking out for those kind of situations. But if you think of it, if it's, this is the kind of prayer that you constantly pray and you're not meant to give up, that means they're kind of like the common, the more common things that we are meant to be praying about, you know, just you know, God, please help me with my friends and our family who are not Christians. Don't give up praying for that. Uh, God, you know, if I've been dealing with this, um, you know, this difficulty, a difficult relationship, maybe, or a difficult uh, pain, a difficult disease, you know, don't give up praying that. Or um, just being uncertain about something, you know, some lots of us, it's that big decision that's looming over our heads. We don't quite know how to deal with that. Is it to do this or to do that? Actually, not to give up praying about that. We pray, we pray it once, you know, when we first encounter it. But after that, we deal with it with our own strength, our own wisdom. We ask other people, but we feel maybe, oh, am I bothering God, or should I move on to something else? And so this is the challenge, you know, why not for the next four Bible studies, pray for the same thing again and again and again. And, you know, sometimes that allows us to then have that space to pray for Thanksgiving where that prayer is answered, not to miss that out. That allows us to keep track if we are praying for other people. You know, ah, I remember that you said that last week. And so we have still been praying for it for the whole month. And that also then helps us to uh, be more genuine with our prayers. I think sometimes um, when someone else is like has this big thing, you know, oh, wow, there's this crisis, and then it comes to your turn, and then you feel embarrassed <laughs> saying, actually, I don't really have like this big thing to pray about. I just want to pray that, you know, I read my Bible more, 
that you know I just love Jesus more. You know, just kind of like normal Christian things, or deal with temptation, just the same thing. You know, that kind of honesty and that kind of persistence. At least there's room for that. And Jesus is saying, you know, keep doing that. Don't give up. Pray to God, and God will hear you. Because God is not like this unrighteous judge, but God is someone who loves. You know, to hear his children speak to him, he will, verse seven, give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night. So all through the day. Verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I find this verse so interesting. Because you trust in yourself and you think you're a good guy, everyone else is bad. So it's like a comparison thing, you know. Or the other way around, because all those guys are bad, all those guys are messing up. You know, sometimes you do it, do that with Facebook, right? You say, "Oh, my classmates, oh, this guy is not doing very well. You feel a bit better for yourself." Or this person is doing, "Wow, this guy is now doing this big position in this company, and you feel worse about yourself." And so the the answer is surround yourself with losers. <laughs> At least that's what verse nine says. That's what we do sometimes. We feel better about ourselves by comparison because the people around us, you know, they're not doing the daily Bible reading show, that kind of thing, you know, or they're not coming for Bible study. Oh, aren't you glad that we are here? And no one else is here. We are the we are the ones who are you know righteous. We are the ones who are faithful, and you know you forget that you're coming before God, and none of us are righteous before God. Verse ten: Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. Let me see. Let me look. Click on this footnote. Or standing, prayed to himself. So he's standing there. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. That's an inter interesting description, right? It's people who pray to themselves, so oh, who love hearing themselves pray, who play, pray all these things so that they have these, this audience so that they're all praying almost to them. <laughs> this Pharisee, that's what he's doing. And he prays this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector get this you know there's this guy next to him i'm glad i'm not like this guy <laughs> i fast twice a week i give tithes of all that i get verse 13 but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven but beat his breast oh i'll okay. <laughs> beat his breast saying god be merciful to me a sinner I tell you, this man, not, not, not the Pharisee, obviously, you know, the tax collector, the sinner, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So connection again with prayer, whose prayer does God listen to? Uh, I remember this uh, illustration that Francis Chan always used to use. Um, he said that, um, you know, there are times when God doesn't listen to everyone's prayer. He, apparently, he, he was telling everyone, you know, just pray, just pray, just pray, because God will hear your prayer. But actually, there are prayers in the Bible that God doesn't listen to because they're not praying to him. They're, they're praying about themselves. They're not praying... Um, to God, you know, for things that God wants them. Oh, maybe there's their sin in their lives. Maybe they're, you know, just being unloving like this Pharisee. Um, but yeah, uh, there are individuals, to, 
uh, whom God will not listen to, even if they pray in the temple as a Pharisee. And even they give all this money. I give all these, these tithes. I fast twice a week. I go to Bible study. <laughs> and they are much better, objectively much better than all the people who aren't in this Bible study, who don't do all these horrible things that no one in our Bible study would ever do, extort people, you know, do adultery or do things that these people like this tax collector does. And, you know, Jesus says, that's not the guy who goes home justified, meaning this guy is not a Christian, but the person who goes home forgiven. And the idea of justify is not just that it's okay, you know, your sins, I'll forget them, but that you are in the right. It's as if all these good things that you're meant to do, this, this evil guy who did all these bad things, as if you did them, you know, that means God puts you in the good books, you know, in the good guy category, you know, this tax collector. Again, um, we're thinking who's the equivalent of tax collector today. Um, I don't know, a corrupt politician, <laughs> you know, in, in Malaysia, at least, you know, uh, that's, that's like the category of, you know, your mom tells you don't, don't be a corrupt politician. I saw this ad series um, to discourage people from corruption. And it's so cute. It's just uh, videos of moms. You know, they're, they're about, at, about at home doing their housework. And there's this mom doing laundry. And she takes out uh, her, her, this packet, this envelope inside her son's pocket as she's doing laundry. And she takes out money. And then there's a note there. Oh, thank you for doing me this favor. And she goes, oh, I told you, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And so, yeah, um, that's the equivalent of the tax collector. This person who, you know, you would be ashamed of to say that it's your brother, your friend, you knew this person has a criminal record, that kind of thing. Maybe the person did drugs. Maybe this person, you know, the kind of think that, you know, how can this person, you know, be a Christian, that kind of thing. Jesus says that person is the one who's justified, who's forgiven, who's a real Christian. Because look at what he says. You know, he stands far off, verse 13. <coughs> Would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mercy means I deserve judgment. Mercy is what you say to your uh, teacher when they find out that you've been copying homework and you deserve the punishment. He said, oh, please be lenient, lenient to me. Instead of having three spanks, just one spank. Instead of being punished, you know, do duck walk on the school field. That's what we used to do uh, in my old school. You know, if you were caught coming late to school and you're caught by the prefect during recess, you have to do duck walk and you like squat like a duck and you have to do this duck walk squats all along the length of the football field. Um, football, soccer, not, we didn't do football, the other American football in Malaysia, but yeah, it was a long distance and in the, in the hot sun, it, it was horrible actually, uh, now when I think of it, but yeah, imagine that bad guy is the one who gets forgiven, all the prefects, all the good kids, all the uh, ASAR students are the ones who are not uh, forgiven and they don't realize it, the thing is, this Pharisee goes back thinking that he's the one who's forgiven and I think the tax collector is the one who goes home thinking, oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm such a loser. But Jesus is opening our eyes to see what he sees. 
you know, who's the one who's forgiven, who's the one who's humble, and who's the one who is exalted by God. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. I still don't know why. You know, what, why is it that, you know, bringing baby is so cute, right? Ah, oh, baby, baby is so cute. And then the disciples say, go away. <laughs> you know, why, 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 what do they have against babies? But apparently, you know, the babies, uh, maybe they rebuke not the babies, but the parents. Yeah, it makes more sense. So why are you bothering Jesus in a sense? You know, Jesus is so important. You know, don't you know that he has a busy schedule, that kind of thing. Verse 16, but Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the children, sorry, the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So you should be like the babies. You should be like child. Maybe not Google Gaga, that kind of thing. But I think uh, not having that status, even thinking about that tax collector, you know, not, not just leaning on your CV. You know, I'm with Jesus. You know, I'm the one who gets to scold you. You know, you know, you get you have to get through me. I have to, I have to put it into his calendar. Said so, no, you have to come to me the way that um, uh, these parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. Um, Jesus, I don't know if, if this is kind of an affirmation for kids ministry, Sunday school ministry, that kind of thing. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, please, uh, biblical theologians, please don't. Don't 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 condemn me so immediately. Um, you know who you are. Verse seventeen. Maybe he's talking about um, having that um, mindset of coming to God again, realizing that fully, not having any rights to do so, uh, not assuming anything, nothing to do with the innocence of the kids. But again, not having that status. Maybe that's why the disciples rebuked them, saying, "You know, these are not the kinds of people Jesus has time for." Actually, they are the ones who Jesus has come for. Well, that's us. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean that. I don't mean to, to as a slight, you know, lots of biblical theologians, you're very nice people. Uh, I hope I'm one of you. Uh, sorry, I don't mean that. <laughs> don't take it personally. Either way, uh, things come out when you speak randomly on the internet. I do. That, that's my feeling. Sorry, not, nothing to do with you. Verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is, is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal 
life. Rich guy comes. Jesus says, "Sell everything." He doesn't want to do that, and Jesus says, "Ha ha ha!" You know how hard it is. And I bet you, almost everyone who hears this this story, this event right now, go, oh, "Of course, of course!" You know that guy. You know, of course, you know it's so difficult for him. And they wouldn't say what uh, Peter and his friends say. You know, uh, where where is it again? Uh, he says, "How difficult is this? Is it for the wealth, wealthy to enter the kingdom of God?" And then those who heard it, verse twenty said, says, "Then who can be saved?" You know, very few people would have that kind of reaction today, and I think that's unfortunate because they think that they're not wealthy. Number one, even though they are, and secondly, they can't imagine. You know, someone whom they know who is actually wealthy, not getting into heaven. And you know, if if I were to preach this、uh, in in your church,、uh, maybe if once you hear this, you will never invite me again to preach this passage, especially.、Um, but you know,、um, I would probably name a name of someone who is very respected, but also you know, very successful in your church, and say, imagine if Jesus said, "It's hard for that guy." Hard for Calvin to go go into heaven, and and you go, oh, how can he be? How can he be? Because you know, hey, you know, I am super duper wealthy, you know, I have all can, camera, computer, that kind of thing, and you say, oh no no no, you know, because you know Calvin, you know, the, he reads the Bible and that kind of thing. No, <laughs> this guy, this guy, you know, he has he has obeyed all the commandments as well. You know, don't don't forget that this is not a bad bad. Kind of guy. He actually loves God. He loves God's word, but he's also wealthy, and it's that wealthy part that's almost weighing down and almost canceling out that first bit. That's making it hard. And then, if I were to na- again, maybe maybe I shouldn't name a particular name. Maybe I should use myself as an example. And then,、uh, but then again, you know, there are going to be people who say, "Yeah, I know yeah, that Calvin. He's horrible." <laughs> but you get the idea. The thing is, you need to almost consider. That you know people like this.、Um, that there are people whom you just assume that guy, of course, of course, and you make exceptions for because you know,、um, of course, you know God has blessed them with that job, with that position, maybe even with that position inside that church. And you say, oh, you know, of course, you know Jesus doesn't mean that. Jesus does, of course, he means that. He means that just wealth in general has this tie to our hearts that weighs us down. That almost cancels out that devotion to God, because this guy, for all his love for God's law and you know his authenticity, he actually practices him. He says, "All these I've kept since my youth." He becomes sad, just that the thought of giving away all his wealth, and everyone else becomes sad when they see him become sad. And Jesus says, "You know, therefore, what is impossible, therefore, God makes." Possible, and you need to get to that point of impossibility before this makes sense. And so, yeah, I would challenge you. You know, you do know, you do know someone like this.、Uh, you do have someone like this in your church. And maybe for the sake of not that person, you know, to wake that person out. Hey, you need to be conscious. You know, your wealth might be weighing you down. It's not that, but for you, our own expectations. Jesus tells this for the benefit of Peter. Of all his disciples who are shocked at this, to realize why is it that we are enter- entering into heaven? It's not because of our status. Same idea going through with you know the children and with the Pharisees. It's not because you led a good Bible study. It's not because you preach a good sermon. It's not because you turned up in church today. None of us, none of us, 
can are allowed are rightly allowed to go into God's presence. God has done the impossible by letting any of us, you know, enter heaven or be forgiven by Jesus' blood. And then there's a flip side to that. Peter says, you know, we have given up so much. Peter says again, verse twenty-eight: We've left our homes to follow you. Jesus says. God is no one's debtor. You know, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house, wife, brothers, parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will not receive many more times, more in this in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, wait, Jesus, you're saying, you know, um, the person has much, you know, is weighed down by this. But Jesus is saying in this time, in this lifetime, he's not talking just in heaven, but he says in this lifetime, there is a kind of blessing and here it might not be referring to material blessing, you know, uh, brothers, wife, house, parents. It might be talking. I think he's just simply talking about the church. Let's let's put it concretely. It's not talking about just spiritual blessing, but it's just talking about the church, which you're a part of. That Bible study. I'm sorry for knocking Bible study. Bible study is what he's talking about here. That group of people whom you'll be hanging out with. He's describing them as almost God's blessing, almost God's compensation. You know, for all the sacrifices, all the heartache, all the losses, especially in terms of relationship, that you will endure for following him. And Jesus says you will receive that in this age and in the life to come, eternal life. Verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated, and spit upon. I just want to go through that list again. He will be mocked. When was the last time someone called you names? He will be shamefully treated. You know, someone um, physically assaults you, and embarrasses you, and causes you to be ashamed, not just before that person, but in front of all your friends, um, and finally spit upon. You know, you know, how would you feel? You probably feel insulted, angry. You know, so how dare you do this to me? That's what's going to happen to Jesus. And verse 33, after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they didn't grasp what was said. Um... It's interesting to me that Jesus is explaining and explaining, explaining, telling them point blank. And then why then would God hide this from them? What's the point of telling someone uh, something that God will, would hide the meaning of to them, their hearts? Does that make sense? You know, it, it, I mean, this is Jesus. Imagine Jesus telling, giving a sermon and God not allowing that sermon to land in people's hearts. Imagine uh, Jesus explaining this to us, and then on one level we get it, but on a deeper level, it's not that we are not smart enough, we aren't, it's not that we aren't uh, sensitive enough, we aren't either, but on top of that, God prevents it uh, from landing into our souls, into our understanding. Because it says there, this saying was hidden from them. There's a sense in which, you know, it makes sense, but it doesn't. I think the crucifixion and death of Christ, his rejection and all that happens there, it makes so much sense only because God helps us to understand it. And I think that's, that's the flip side of this. 
Therefore, if you do get this and you claim that as a Christian, yes, we understand it's a cross. We know that, of course, you know, Jesus is talking about the cross. And be honest, sometimes you hear, oh, yeah, this again. <laughs> yeah, we, we get it. We get it. Yeah, it's the third prediction. He's going to Jerusalem. Of course, he's going to die. And sometimes as Bible study leaders, right, you know, you, you, you dread asking this obvious question. So what is Jesus talking about? What is he referring to? And everyone goes, he's talking about the death on the cross. And everyone goes, yeah, we know this, we know this. Well, if you know this, it's not because you know it. It's because God has revealed it to you. Because if you don't know this, it means God has hidden this from you. you there needs to be this weightiness. Hey, you know, we know something that lots of people don't know. Lots of people, God has hidden the understanding of the significance of this event from the same way they hid it from the 12. Yeah. Verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going on. He inquired what this meant. You know, blind guy is a He's, what's going on? What's going on? And he explained it to him. Verse 37, he told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Oi, shut up. You know, don't you see that, you know, Jesus is busy and, you know, we're going to church. You know, he can't stop. And he cried out all the more. <laughs> he didn't give up. Son of David, have mercy on me. Worth comparing again to the tax collector, have mercy on me. You know, yeah. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And also worth comparing with the disciples who rebuked the parents of those who were bringing their infants. So, you know, the same theme, same line, same connection running through the entire chapter. Now this blind man, everyone thinks he doesn't deserve to speak to Jesus. He's not the kind of person Jesus wants to talk to. What are the kinds of people in your church? Are they the kinds of people that you would expect Jesus wants to talk to? What if someone not like one of those people turned up? Would you tell them to get lost? Where are we? Verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came here, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. One challenge I'd like to give to you. When was the last time you did a Bible study with a non-Christian? When was the last time you got involved in an evangelistic Bible study? I promise you, the Bible study you have in that kind of circle with people who are not Christians, and you see all these light bulbs coming, going, going off, it's, it's not the same as when you go to a, you know, a room full of people who have been Christians all their lives. You know, it's very different. I promise, if, if you don't see just how amazing this chapter is, how, how you should almost love, oh, wow, today we get to do uh, Luke chapter 18. If, you're, if you don't have that in your heart, I suggest that you need to hang out with a few more non-Christians and maybe have an opportunity to participate in that evangelistic Bible study because this is gold. You know, you, you do this Bible study, it teaches itself. You know, when you have a group of people who don't know anything about Jesus, who think they don't belong there, and then they read this and they get it, you know, this is about me. And, um, and you, know, you know, I think of my own church again. Sorry, I do, I do. I know, I think of all these students, and they read this, go, yep, yep, of course it's about me. And I think that's not the reaction. That is not 
the reaction you should get when you read this. You should go and you should read this and go, oh wow, <sighs> what really? Jesus wants to talk to me. Jesus wants me to be impressed. His, I, I, I thought I thought I didn't have any right. You know, I came here today thinking that it was a mistake to turn up. I, I, you know, if you knew all the things I was, if you knew what I did, oh man, you know, if and you know, Jesus does know, and Jesus, He's God, but Jesus says, "I'm the person He wants to see. He's the one who hears my request." You know, this blind beggar says, "I want to see." You know, recover your Lord. Let me recover my sight, and the truth is, He sees. Better than everyone else. Everyone doesn't see him. He calls him son of David. He recognizes him as the Messiah. Everyone else doesn't see him. Everyone else doesn't see that. Everyone sees like reflections of themselves. But he sees here someone who can, you know, well, he sees him for who he is. He sees him as the son of God. He sees him as this merciful person who's able to help him. Otherwise, he can't be helped. That's why he cries out to him. That's why the Pharisee, that's why not the Pharisee, the tax of the Christ, I mean, no, Please have mercy on me, a sinner. And, you know, I won't leave until you give me this request because I need it. Again, like that widow, again, like that naggy widow. You see, it's not just about having that attitude. Let's let's carve out enough time of prayer in a day. <laughs> you know, that's what we do, right? That's our application point. So all of you, you should go back home and you should pray more, yeah? Let's pray now and then make sure we cover everyone in prayer. No. If if you know if if you are in a situation whereby I can't I can't deal with this on my own, you know God, you know, all you can do this. You know I work in a hospital. I've seen this enough times to know that this is true. You know people just wheeling in their kids in in the chapel, and you can't even make out what they're saying because it's going yeah. And and in real life, you know, it's like a Hong Kong drama, Korean drama. But when that happens to you, you know when that wrong has been done to you and it's so wrong and you just need it to be done right then you will pray like this then you'll come to god like this you won't come to him like the rich young ruler say look at my cv you know what can i add to it so i can be extra sure you know that i'll get into heaven you know do i need to lead another bible study do i need to join the team course and make sure that my biblical theology is all right you need to realize you can't do anything you're useless you're a sinner you're broken, you know, there's nothing in you that God needs, that God finds, you know, you can't do anything to please God. But God loves you. God gave his son for you. He died for you. He was made like this. He was spit upon for you. And that's why you can come to him and find mercy. Job chapter 33. Very heavy. Sorry. <laughs> Very heavy passage today. How are we doing for time? Six twin Oh, okay. All right. Not too good. Speed up. Job chapter 33. Uh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. 33 verses in chapter 33. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks, my words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me, if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was 
pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. It's really throwing down the gauntlet. Hey, Job, you know, you've talked to all these guys. Talk to me. You know, we're, we're both this, the same. You know, you're saying, you know, pinch from that same clay. No, listen to what I have to say. You know, verse one, listen to my words. You know, the tongue and my mouth speaks. You know, I'm declaring the uprightness of my heart. You know, God's spirit, maybe his spirit, his breath is inside of me, gives me life. So now I'll ask you, why don't you try answering my questions? Verse eight, sounds again like a Cambridge student. I've got to admit, I, 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 part of me kind of admires someone like Elihu. If I actually were to meet a student like this, I, I would have some measure of admiration and respect for someone who's willing to step up to the plate and you know, speak his piece and you know to speak to his professors maybe even speak to your pastor in a way that you know um almost almost says you know weigh me up you know let's have this conversation of course you know elihu is full of his own pride but it's, it's a different kind of pride it's not a pride that comes from having been there done that that kind of thing it's this novel pride it says you know i i have something to contribute that maybe none of you have ever considered before. I have this new way of approaching this problem. Sorry. Ugh. Itchy ears. Verse 8. Surely, sorry, there, there, <laughs> there's a bad, bad, bad reference to that itching ears. Paul says, Surely you've spoken in my ears, and I've heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Uh, so he's kind of like characterizing what Job said. You know, you said you're innocent, you're blameless without transgression. And therefore, you know, God is attacking me. You know, God, he counts me as his enemy. And this is uh, well, kind of true not quite you know i i think job is not saying that i am absolutely 100 percent pure but he's saying that i am not being judged according to where i am i think job you know he offers sacrifices remember in the beginning he keeps offering sacrifices sacrifices means you're saying sorry sacrifices means you're kind of like um recognizing that you're sinful and so he keeps doing this it, it's not just for show you know he he does this for his children he does this for his family so he understands that the idea of being sinful and Job's therefore not saying you know i'm like this but rather he says i'm like this but i'm being punished like this and so there's a difference from saying from saying i'm being unjustly punished from saying hey i'm super miss good guy not deserving any punishment at all but that's what elihu is characterizing in terms of job's words job's position verse 12 Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer no, none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, oh, and, and, and God speaks to you and you don't even realize he's speaking to you in this, these dreams and these visions. He's, he's trying to say, you know, God is speaking in this very profound way that we might not even understand. He's saying, therefore, either that, you know, it's, it's wrong that God hasn't spoken to you about your situation. Maybe you just haven't realized it. 
Um, yeah, uh, maybe that's what he's implying. And in verse 16, then he opens the ears of men and then terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the soul, by the sword. And it's like keeping from danger from the pit, from the, from the, from the sword, in this idea of turning away. And in, in other words, the main thing, according to Elihu, that God is always saying to us in a way that we might not perceive is that God is always turning away from danger, that God doesn't want us to fall off the edge. You know, he's trying to speak to us in such a way to turn back, turn back, repent. Don't, don't go all the way over there or you'll be, you'll be killed and the kind of thing. And you've got, you've got to give it to Elihu. You know, he is speaking in a way that does kind of characterize what God does. You know, he's constantly calling us back, you know, warning us against his, his, his wrath, his anger, if we were to go against him. And I guess to put this in a bigger framework, he says, therefore, maybe that's what God is using in terms of the punishment to speak to Job. You know, he's almost saying like, Job, do you realize this, that all these punishments that are coming upon you, maybe it's a way of God, uh, God's way of imperceptibly saying to you, turn back, turn back. You know, you, you are in the wrong, but there's an opportunity for you to turn back. So it's a very soft approach therefore, of dealing with Job's situation of his pain and his tragedy and giving him that direction to turn back towards. Verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed. So hence, you know, the suffering again. And with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. Actually, being hungry, <laughs> reading these verses makes me even hungrier. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands to declare to man what is right for him and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what is right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. And so here you find the words redeemed again and again twice here in verse 28. And where was the other time? Uh, I noticed it the other time. Redeem. Uh, verse 28. Maybe it's just at one time. Yeah. Oh, ransom. Yeah. Verse 24. I found a ransom. So there's this payment. And get this. Okay. So there's this payment for repentance. In other words, uh, Elihu is suggesting that all the suffering that's coming upon you, Job, because he, he starts with talking about this pain on, upon his bed, this continual strife inside his bones, and how you know he, his bones are sticking out, that kind of thing. So all these horrible, horrible things. It's a kind of payment. Again, this is Elihu speaking. I'm not saying that this is right. But Elihu is saying this kind of payment that God is using so that you can turn back. Meaning this is the price to be paid for repentance. And the hint here is that, again, you know, Job, all these terrible situations that have happened to you, not least the death of your family, your death of your sons and your daughters, 
it's a way that God is turning you back. That's just the price of doing business with God. It sounds uh, wise, but it's it, it's kind of cruel. It, it is, it is. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn. You know, there's, there's a part of me that really admires how Elihu is kind of like spinning, you know, you know, a term means you know, a person who spins truth, you know, he, he's using it to his advantage, but it sounds really good. It sounds really elegant the way that he puts it. And, but at the same time, you know, it's very cruel <laughs> to say to someone, God is using the death of that loved one so that you will turn you back. Uh, very, very careful to make those kind of assumptions sometimes. Verse 29, almost at the end, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit. Again, that idea of bringing back. That he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. Sorry, let me just move this up. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. There you go. Elihu's version of wisdom, this unconventional, innovative wisdom that says that all the suffering that Job has experienced is the price to be paid so that he will acknowledge that he needs to repent. Job 33. Uh, finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. How are we doing for time? 636. Yeah, I think we can do this. Chapter 3. And Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's really, really beautiful. If it wasn't a rebuke, <laughs> he's scolding them. He says, you know, are we trying to show off again? He says, are we trying to get you to recognize just how important we are or we should be in front of your eyes? But he turns around saying, and says, you know, actually our importance and our significance should almost be written on your hearts because, you know, we, you are almost the testament to our authenticity. And it's worth saying that, you know, if you lead a Bible study, you know, it's not just how well you've spoken and led that study, but how much of that study actually reflects in the lives of your uh, Bible study members. You know, they will be the testament as to how loving you've been, you know, how generous, how faithful you've been with God's Word. Uh, this week, again, I just uh, led a, well, I didn't lead anything. I just sat in <laughs> this workshop. While other people led Bible study, I just gave comments and I just asked very, very obvious questions. What do you think? That kind of thing. Uh, but maybe I should say to them, you know, in, at the end of the day, what if God evaluated how faithful, how loving, how uh, authentic your ministry was based on the people and how much uh, they took away from that Bible study? Because that's what Paul is saying. And he says, uh, you don't need to judge me based on me, based on my CV. 
the fact that you are in Christ. You know, I'm proud to actually point people to you. Look at them because they are the testament. They are my CV. They are the letter of recommendation, he says, that's written on our hearts and written by the spirit of the living God, you know, to be known by all. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, you, you are here. Yeah, it's, it's so affectionate. It's so real. And I think it's talking about that fruit. And what difference does it make that we have this Bible study today, that I have this reading today? I need to ask myself that because sometimes, you know, yes, the habit is great. And, you know, um, this, there is value in itself just reading God's word. But when there are other people involved, when you have that responsibility, you, you can't get away with just, okay, let's do the Bible study. It's done. Okay, that's it. And God would just judge me based on my performance. But actually that relationship, that almost the, the people who are in the room with you, Zoom room, breakout room, <laughs> whatever it is, still real people at the end of that, you know, that connection, they are written on your hearts. Such is your concern for them, your love for them, their salvation before Christ, that they're written before your hearts, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, verse 3, not on tablets of stone, I guess, comparing with the Ten Commandments that are written on stone, thou shalt not, da-da-da-da-da, but on tablets of the human hearts, you know, um, keep on, love God, love your neighbor, you know, that kind of thing, it's written here, it's, you, 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 you can't see it, but you can't see it, if that makes sense. You can't see it in that, you know, I can't show you this tablet and say, there it is, it's written there, you know, this is my CV. But that you can see it in the lives of the people, in their responses to the people around them as well. And how convicting is that? You know, um, if, you know, that was, at the end of the day, our very, our only motivation for, you know, going to ministry, for helping out in church, that we want people's lives to be changed we want to be so affected by them not just affecting them but be so affected by them that they are inside our hearts we're almost carrying them right here verse 4 such is the confidence that we have through christ toward god okay all right so it's not confidence in front of other people but before god not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us but our sufficiency is from God. What's another word for sufficiency? Our, I think of, you know, do you, sometimes you go through a day and you wonder, do I have enough battery in this? You know, and, and you know, do I have enough to go on? And it's not talking about full battery, I think. I think it's talking about how actually it's in its last legs. But enough just to be able to say, send that important message. You know, you know, at the end of the day, you know, maybe you don't have a plug point, you're in the bus or something. Remember when you still had to travel by bus to work and that kind of thing, and you didn't just do work at home. But, you know, you, oh, no, the battery is going down, and I can only do one thing. But this is the most important thing to be done. There's enough time to send this text. Make sure you get dinner ready. <laughs> well, you know, but just to do that thing, enough, that enoughness, not, not talking about the ampleness, but the enoughness, sufficiency is from God, who's made us, verse 6, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So this confidence that they have through Christ towards God, 
that they're not sufficient in themselves. He starts by that says, "Just looking at me, little me, and what I can do, I can't do this. God, you've chosen the wrong person." That's what Moses says, right? You know, I, I can't do this. Not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us. You know, there's nothing of this from me, but everything from God, sufficient from God. God has given us enough to be able to carry out what He wants us to do. I remember that um, saying from Philip Jensen many years ago. How do you know God's will? Well, God's will is not to make you happy, but to become holy. It's not happiness, but holiness that determines what is God's will for us at the end of the day. And here, Paul is talking about ministry. I guess you could apply the same thing to what's God's will for my life today. You know, just daily purpose in life. You know, at work and our relationships with one another. You know, He's given us enough to do the thing that is right, that is holy. Maybe not popular. Maybe it doesn't make us happy. Maybe make it other people happy, makes them unhappy instead. But to make God happy, it is the holy thing to do, to be ministers of this new covenant. Not one that kills by the letter. Uh, that means by the law. That means you have to do this. Make sure you do this. Be very careful of having that as a kind of takeaway lesson in the Bible study. So what shall we do after this? Do we need to be more prayerful? But no, of the Spirit. That, you know, the Spirit... I always say, I promise you, you trust in this God, God will enable you to be able to pray by the Spirit, to give you that joy you're looking for, to speak to Him, everything in the contents of your heart. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, imagine that, the ministry of death. <laughs> uh, sounds like this um, Harry Potter ministry, ministry of death, the death eaters. Carved in letters on stone. Oh no, I, I know that the moment, moment I say that, that's going to distract some people. They're either going to think about Harry Potter or they're going to go, oh no, this guy quoted Harry Potter. Sorry. Verse 7, But now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more is what is permanent have glory now get this it's talking about this ministry of death <laughs> it's talking about moses that's why he keeps talking about tablets of stone talks about glory that this gaze at moses's face of this glory remember moses would meet with god on the mountain and how real can you get an actual mountain volcano that moses goes up to and when he comes down he's seen so much of god's glory that his face shone <laughs> <laughs> radioactive that it scared people that he had to wear this veil so he wouldn't scare them that, that's what that's what we'll find out later on as we continue on our reading in the Old Testament that Moses almost reflected God's glory in his face that he had to cover it now what happens is this is called the ministry of death what do you mean? You know, Moses, he freed them to life. He saved them in the Exodus. We were just reading about that. But it says, because it's impermanent, impermanent, sorry, that it won't last, 
you know, the same way that Moses' glory, that glory, it would fade away, it was coming to an end, this ministry of the letter, that is of the law, that says that if you do this, you will be saved. If you do this, you'll be justified. If you do this, God will love you. That's a ministry that kills because none of us can do this. But this other ministry, this is of life. It comes through the Spirit that writes this life, this law on our hearts so that we not only have this law, but we want to do this law. Not because, again, of ourselves, but because the Spirit gives us this new life, new heart, new desires inside of us. And so you have these two, two ministries, the New Covenant, you like, and the Old Covenant. One of Moses, which is very, very real, but one now of Jesus, which is written on our hearts. And his argument is not just that this is death, this is life but that this was real glory. This was amazing. They could see it, but still it faded away. You know, saying, this is so amazing. How much more amazing? How much more glorious? How much more wonderful? How much more life-giving is this ministry that comes through the Spirit, through Jesus, that comes through grace? And that's the idea. It's a greater ministry. It's not just that this is bad, although it is not something that will give us life that is that is permanent that is to come but still it's quite pretty amazing you know lots of miracles in exodus we saw that but this is do you realize that you have this sometimes if we admit it if we are admitted why i'd like to see a miracle I, i like to see something real i like god to appear before my my eyes and then i will know if he answers this prayer then i will know then i will know that it's real that's the ministry of death it, it is tangible but it is not permanent. You have this, which is glorious, which will just increase in life, in that glory, in that permanence through Jesus Christ. Said, Do you realize that this is where you're at? Don't settle for this. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Remember I was saying, you know, they're so freaked out. Oh, wow, this guy had radioactive face. Please put this veil, put, put this cover over your face. You know, this Batman, okay, put it over your face. Hello. Yeah, that kind, of, that kind of thing. They were freaked out. But it's not like this. Verse 14, for their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. For when, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Transform we are being changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit who is from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know what? I, I'm going to resist the temptation of explaining this last paragraph because if any of this piques your curiosity. You need to look at this yourself because this is amazing. He's saying that on the one hand, it's possible to have the Bible in front of you, the Old Testament, and to have something covering you. I just don't get this. Just don't read this because it's covering your eyes and it's covering your heart. You can't accept this. 
But when we turn to Christ and we see Him, that veil, that that screen, if you like, that barrier is taken away. And not only taken away such that we can understand, hey, I got it, I understand it. Not, not just that, but that He changes us into this glory. Earlier on, he's talking about Moses. Now, now, now that I say I'm actually explaining it. Oh, no, I'm going to stop there. There's going to be this transformation that's going to happen in us. And he's just trying to say, verse 12, we have this hope. We should be bold. You are being changed. You are this new letter of recommendation that's on our hearts. You are here and God loves you and God has written his spirit into your hearts. God has given you this amazing, amazing, amazing hope of glory. Don't you realize that? Don't you see that? Aren't you amazed by that? And yeah, so that that's that's it, it's incredible. It's incredible. I think, you know, passages like this just really lift lifts up your gaze to God to see what's really ahead. You know, what what really does God have in store for us? And how is it? How can I see this today? How he he claims that there is supposed to be this transformation inside of me. I meant to see this slow but certain, but change from glory to more glory. How do I, I want to see this? I, I want to experience this. I don't want this to let pass this day without knowing that God has actually done something today to change me to be more and more like this picture of glory that we see in Jesus. Yeah. Okay, all right, uh, good time to end. I need to eat dinner. Okay, all right, okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, whoa, this, this is incredible. This is awesome, in true sense of the word, that you would transform us to be like Christ. Um, help us to see this in ourselves. Thank you that we were able to see this you know, in one another, this transformation, this heart transformation. And help us to see this in your word. You know, this spirit-written word that is on the pages of your Bible, but also on the pages of our hearts, such that we will have it with us at all times. We will want to obey this. We will treasure this. And we hear it again and again to be able to recognize your voice speaking to us, such that we know that we have this hope and we will respond with this certain boldness and approach you again and again in prayer. Thank you so much again for this reminder today. Please bless us in this wonderful, amazing reading of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.